and welcome to edition four of Natural Gas World's In a Nutshell podcast. Joining me today uh, are, are is my uh, executive or editor in chief, William Powell, in London, and our special guest today is Alfred Sorensen, CEO of uh, Pierde Energy in here in in Calgary. Um, for those of you who don't know Alfred, he is uh, the CEO of Pierre Energy, has been since 2012 when the company was founded. Uh, he's got 30 years of experience uh, in the oil and gas industry, both in Canada and internationally. Uh, and what many people may not know is that he was instrumental in starting uh, uh, Galveston LNG, which became Kitimat LNG and which has been subsequently sold around several times and is now a project of Australia's Woodside and Chevron. Uh, prior to all of that, uh, Alfred was president of Duke Energy Europe and before that president of Duke Energy Canada. Welcome, Alfred. Thank you very much. Thanks for the Welcome. invite as well. Okay. Um, to kick things off, uh, most people I, I'm sure know about Goldboro LNG, but for those who don't, can you just give us the elevator pitch uh, version of your project? All right. Uh, well, Goldboro is part of uh, Paraday, and uh, Paraday is Canada's only uh, fully integrated LNG natural gas company. We basically operate from the flange, from the field right to the flange, and uh, Goldboro being the way we are going to monetize our gas supply that we uh, currently control and will develop in Western Canada. And it's a, an eight, mil, 8 million metric ton per year project, is that correct? Uh, it's uh, uh, 10 metric tons, uh, two ten trains, um, each train five metric tons, and the first uh, uh, train is. I've been sold to Uniper, and the second train is a, a couple of uh, European utilities. Our entire project is very Eurocentric and is very much uh, geared to delivering LNG into uh, Western Europe in the first quarter of 25. Okay, you mentioned that it's Canada's first fully integrated project. Can you tell me what that means and maybe give us a, an overview of, of the various components, um, starting from your supply sources in Western Canada? to your market uh, potential in Europe? Well, I think when you when we talk about who we are, when you look at those kind of two basic business models that the LNG industry has, uh, similar to the rest of the world, uh, our project is a fully integrated one where we control the gas supply as well as uh, the LNG terminal. And the second business model is more like what you see in the Gulf Coast where uh, the facilities act more like uh, a midstream asset and they toll their capacity to uh, and users or third-party users such that uh, uh, the third party is either responsible to get the gas supply itself or perhaps even the uh, marketing arm of the uh, of the LNG terminal may provide the natural gas. But in our scenario, um, uh, we actually control the upstream as well. Uh, we spent the last couple of years uh, acquiring gas supply in Western Canada. Today, we are the um, um, we're the largest foothills uh, producer in Canada, and we're probably one of the largest in North America. We um, currently have control about, uh, uh, on a gross basis, about a million acres along uh, the uh, Rocky Mountains of, uh, of Canada, from northeastern British Columbia down to the Canadian-U.S. border. Uh, we are very much one of our business uh, uh, tenants. is It's very much to reuse, recycle, repurpose existing assets. So. Um, 
um, everything about our project is trying to use things that are already in existence rather than building brand new. And so we kind of compare Goldboro to Canada LNG. Uh, that project's roughly about $40 billion. Ours is about $10 billion. And the principal reason for that is we're not building all brand new uh, uh, assets, not new pipeline, not new uh, gas uh, um, plants for processing. Obviously, the LNG terminal is brand new. But uh, other than that, um, uh, we tend to try and reuse what's already in existence. So uh, to answer your question, uh, what parts of the chain? Uh, as I said, you know, upstream we uh, have uh, a significant production today. We are about 225 million a day of gas that we process that we own, and and uh, uh, what we don't own, we process about another three to four hundred million a day. So the uh, capacity of our existing gas plants that we acquired from Shell last uh, year was. Uh, is roughly about 750 million a day. So we currently have enough gas processing capacity to fill the entire first train of our project. And uh, from an uh, asset perspective, um, uh, in the field, as I said, we have roughly about a million acres and we've identified roughly about 500 drilling locations in that million acres to um, uh, eventually begin drilling at the end of 2021. And we will fill the 200 to 800 million a day that we'll need uh, through the 500 to 600 wells that we'll drill over the uh, five-year period that the, the uh, terminal is under construction. Then the gas transports from our gas plants onto the Nova gas system, and that leads to the TransCanada system. Uh, it goes across Canada, uh, enters into the United States just east of Montreal, and then connects up into the Maritimes Northeast Pipeline. Uh, Maritimes uh, begins at Goldboro, and that's principally why the site was chosen, is that we wanted to be as close to the existing infrastructure as possible. Uh, Maritimes Northeast was originally constructed in 99-2000 uh, to bring uh, gas from Sable offshore, onshore, and, and transport down to the United States. Uh, uh, the pipeline was always reversible, and uh, matter of fact, uh, now that Sable is no longer in operation, that um, the pipe has already been reversed and Atlantic Canada is served by gas coming out of uh, um, uh, the United States. So, uh, or some might even come from Canada now. I think actually, I think there's one or two customers who have actually taken a long-term capacity on TransCanada. So um, when people ask, you know, how do we make this economic? And that's a good question to ask. And it has a lot to do with the fact that there is a significant amount of unused capacity, both on Trans and TC Energy, as well as on Maritimes Northeast. And uh, we basically have worked on a transaction that um, effectively uh, made us neutral as to whether we got gas from Western Canada or from the Marcellus. And that's really kind of the... Uh, the uh, underlying fundamental of our project is the fact that we wanted to neutralize the uh, distance disadvantage of Western Canada. And uh, the reason we we're interested in Western Canadian gas resources is uh, particularly, maybe not so much today, but two years ago, three years ago, uh, it was obvious that Canadian uh, gas resources were under significant uh, valuation pressure. And we were able to acquire gas resources um, uh, to kind of put some numbers to it, roughly uh, under 10,000 a flowing barrel. To do the exact same transaction in the United States, and the Marcellus would have been closer to about 25,000 uh, US a barrel. So a significant uh, uh, difference in valuation that um, allows for a long-term competitive advantage for the LNG terminal over time. And it's the ownership of the upstream that's important to us because that acts as our 
uh, hedge between uh, the offshore uh, price and what's happening in North America. So mm -hmm. as we see what's happening right now, obviously um, international gas prices are such that um, it makes liquefaction very, very uh, challenged at these prices, but uh, in our scenario, uh, owning the resource upstream would allow us to um, continue to feed gas into the LNG terminal, regardless of if we wish to do that. Um, it's not likely we would be producing right now is what you're seeing in the Gulf Coast uh, is obviously um, uh, a result of the fact that uh, uh, gas prices are basically the same, whether you're talking about Tokyo Bay or Gulf Coast or or TTF, it's basically the same price everywhere. So, uh, um, and obviously if the price stayed like this for a long period of time, you're not going to see any more LNG terminals being built. But, uh, um, you know, our view is uh, that um, we still uh, have an economic uh, facility that um, uh, with our off-taker, Uniper, is, uh, uh, they're buying the gas at market prices. So, um, you know, obviously today we not be making any money for sure. But um, when we do, it, it's how we put the economic, not the economics of our project together is basically by owning that entire uh, uh, value chain from the field to the flange. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of things on, on the transportation. It's my understanding that TC Energy has to do uh, a little bit of capacity work in that, in that tiny gap between Canada uh, and the TQ&M system in Quebec and Maritimes in Northeast. And I, I think it's Portland Natural Gas, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, my last conversation with TC Energy is that they're exploring uh, about a 200 million a day capacity upgrade. Is that to accommodate your uh, volumes or is that something you're even discussing with TC Energy right now? Oh, as I said, you know, we, um, um, our view is, um, uh, our job is to deliver gas to Empress and then pick it back up at Westbrook. Uh, there's obviously, if you look at it, the capacity is not there. There's uh, obviously something has to be done to make it work. So uh, uh, between Canada and the United States, uh, it's mostly compression that needs to be added in that area. And uh, from uh, East Hereford to uh, Westbrook, there is some looping that has to be done. And, uh, you know, we're... Um, um, we're just kind of working on that process right now of how to make it happen. Uh, Trans TC is actually quite uh, adverse to any risk right now, given what's happened with pipelines everywhere in uh, North Carolina, <laughs> not just in Canada. You've seen what's happened in the last few days, even in the United States. Uh, yeah. uh, this yeah. Atlantic pipeline got canceled just recently, or yesterday, or the day before, whenever it was. That. Um, uh, the northeastern part of the United States is equally difficult when it comes to building pipelines, as, as appears that uh, most of Canada is. So, uh, the um, I think the interesting thing, you know, I think if both of T Trans Mountain and Coastal you know, kind of get to the finish line in the next year or so, year and a half, as they go through their construction phase, um, you know, that should take some of the pressure off pipelines, only because there won't be any more to be built, and um, maybe go back to the environment we used to live in, where um, uh, it was a relatively uh, mundane business pipeline building is, but, uh, um, you know, our view is, or trans TC's view is, is that the pipeline work that needs to be done stays in the existing right of way. It does not uh, require any additional uh, land outside of the existing right of way. And as a result, that will not be a significant issue to, um, to uh, 
uh, get the work that we need done in the time we need to be done. Um, the bigger issue I'd say right now is, is uh, you know, can you finance in a, in a marketplace where gas is selling for under $2? I think that's probably our bigger issue right now. It, um, because it, uh, if a year ago to convince people, we need roughly about uh, to earn mid-teens uh, type returns, we need gas price above 750 at the NDP or TTF. European gas price uh, hubs that um, uh, if it was hard to convince people when prices were at 550 to six dollars that they would make that one dollar fifty gap change uh, trying to do it from below two dollars to 750 might be a big challenge so uh, but we're up for the challenge so we'll see uh, uh, how um, that goes over the next few months but um, I think because the project is very uh, German eccentric it uh, is certainly uh, from the very beginning uh, when we first signed our deal with uh, with Uniper or back then it was still Eon that um, uh, this was really about diversity of security of supply and uh, that's why the German government is uh, uh, willing to be a partner in the in the financing you know, through the UFK uh, it's really all about that and that, that uh, you know, obviously under $2 gas, there is no such thing as security of supply, but that's you know, not the world they're planning for. They're planning for a, a world that uh, where energy will eventually become more valuable. And that uh, I think that's a, a significant advantage that our project has over whatever projects are left out there. And probably in the last you know, six, eight weeks now, we've probably seen at least 10 projects canceled or postponed. And yep. uh, it looked like it was going to be a significant surplus of, of natural gas, liquefied natural gas in uh, the mid-20s is probably getting closer to uh, to flat, if not short. So um, it's one of the principal reasons we continue to push hard on, on reaching our FID decision. And, and that is um, and what we're kind of focused on right now. So, I mean, one, one thing of, you've uh, politely not mentioned is the fact you are very much near the Germany than other US or North American terminals, I should say. You can get from North, Northeast Canada to Germany in a matter of days, can't you? I think it's a much shorter journey, uh, but that doesn't knock some money off the price in terms of your margins as well. Well, there's no doubt that uh, that is the principal advantage of Goldboro, that um, from a distance perspective, uh, Nova Scotia is halfway out in the Atlantic Ocean already, and uh, mm. uh, that um, um, the same reason why virtually every airplane that flies from New York and Boston and all those areas flies over Nova Scotia to go to Europe, that uh, um, it's the fast, it's right on the circumference of the earth, or where the curvature of the earth begins. And uh, uh, that gives us an advantage not only to sell gas to um, Europe, uh, we're half the distance uh, that from the Gulf Coast, we're half the distance from Qatar. Um, even going to South America, uh, mm -hmm. we are actually shorter sailing distance than, uh, than the U.S. So but that is one of the reasons why when we started this whole project, um, as Adele mentioned, uh, you know, obviously our first project was on the west coast of Canada, that um, um, even still we were still looking at 10 to 12 days to Tokyo Bay, that you know, this is half the distance to uh, as big a market as, as Asia is. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think the other fundamental that we've always believed in was this convergence of price and we didn't believe it was going to converge at two dollars but uh uh nobody uh, believed that <laughs> that was you want uh, alone in that <laughs> yeah so that wasn't uh, the intent but uh, 
I think the marketplace is developed now such that convergence is a reality and that's never going to go away now. Um, you know, and being as close to the market as possible is going to oh, is going to be a real advantage and uh, uh, that you get the, you'll get approximately the highest price anyway just because of where you are. So uh, uh, so I think that that is a long-term advantage of Goldboro is the fact that um, uh, we are very close to a very large market and uh, and that market um, really has very limited options from supply and almost all of them from countries that um, either are aggressive towards Western Europe in one form or another. And that's, um, you know, even when thinking about Canada itself, um, when we first talked to the Europeans or, or specifically to E.ON, the reason why they kind of went with our project and our Gulf Coast project in, in the original uh, uh, ask was that um, at that time, uh, Obama was the president of the United States. and. And his administration was very anti-energy export, whereas Canada mm -hmm. has always been neutral about just about everything. And, uh, um, and of course, into this environment today, you have a new president, not so new anymore, but uh, you know, the Trump administration, exact opposite of that, uh, very energy export um, oriented. Yeah. But you've got a, a president that's not well uh, respected. Is that a nice way of saying it? <laughs> in, in, in Europe, but, uh, you won't get any nice. argument here. But anyway, yeah. so um, uh, it's helped us from that perspective and the fact that um, yeah, it, it also seemed to us that uh, one of the reasons why Merkel was so keen on the, your project was that it was showing, if you like, it was showing Trump that. They didn't need Russia, but also not buying it from America. Win-win, <laughs> <laughs> and we won. So that's, uh, <laughs> you know, and trying to, you know, we've spent a lot of time trying to explain that to the Canadian government that, um, uh, you know, that's, you know, I never kind of finished answering your question at the very beginning on why I describe our company that way. And one of the real reasons, you know, we are Canadian, and virtually every other LNG project is controlled by either super majors or uh, uh, national oil companies, and uh, we are different in that regard. And and it's kind of been my our sales pitch to the government of Canada that uh, they said, you know, we are Canadian, and uh, and we're trying to build a Canadian project to export Canadian natural gas. You can and, you can fly uh, the flag and really mean it. In other words, yeah, exactly. So it's uh, so our our kind of second sales side of that is if you give two hundred seventy five million dollars to a super major. Then you sure as hell should be able to support us, and uh, so uh, and uh, and uh, and it has been even all the years that we've managed to hold uh, on to Uniper that the government of Germany has always been kind of like, how come Canada's not in it? You know, we're kind of stepping up, and uh, so hopefully um, our argument is uh, is uh, uh, that we're currently making to try and make sure the project stays on schedule. Uh, to the federal government of Canada is that you know this is an opportunity for Canada to not shy away from a difficult market uh, that um, uh, that if we can continue to to uh, make the project happen over the next year that uh, we will project will arrive on schedule and uh, at a time when uh, the pricing will return to a more normalized marketplace. Yeah, I think the two real risks or uncertainties aren't there. What first of all, as you mentioned, is the gas price. Will it become attractive in Europe in the next five years when you may mean to start up? Of course, then we'll have a very, very different gas market in Europe. Hydrogen might be, might I say, might become uh, commercially viable somehow in certain markets in certain quantities. 
uh, and you have the the general reluctance amongst funds and so on to lend to projects which involve fossil fuels. And of course, Fortum is now the Finnish company, the Finnish government, I should say, is now the uh, the owner of nearly all of uh, Uniper. So there are still some hurdles to negotiate in terms of acceptability in Europe. Uh, will blue hydrogen become, if you like, by necessity possible? Because green hydrogen to me seems a very, very extra extravagant way to, uh, to, to manufacture it. Uh, how much money will Europe have for its green deal and for negotiating all the objectives it set itself? Um, I think a lot of this does sound very good politically, but when the wheels hit the ground, I think it could be a very painful experience for taxpayers <laughs> such as me. <laughs> that's, my, that's my main concern why, why I'm quite fond of gas. I write about it for a living, but also it's for a reason. I do find it interesting and I do find it very valuable. And I, I am surprised by the headwinds that Europe and also now America has uh, developed to oppose it. Um, Alfred, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, no, I was I was going to. You mentioned earlier uh, that you're discussing with with Ottawa uh, their support for your project. Uh, Mr. Trudeau has been, how can I put this politely, somewhat reticent to support uh, fossil fuel projects of of any stripe. What kind of support are you looking? to get back from Ottawa to, to help push this over the, the FID line? Well, we're certainly very focused on financial assistance. There's no uh, uh, denying that. And uh, we've been very vocal about that. Um, and uh, um, right now, I would say equity is very difficult to raise. And uh, it's, uh, um, you know, it, it is certainly still, uh, uh, a marketplace where you know energy has not returned value whether in Canada or the United States for the last five years and and uh, hence trying to raise equities are quite difficult and and that's really the sales pitch we're giving to government is that uh, we're very much looking for the type of assistance that the province of Alberta gave to TC energy to get Keystone across the finish line um, you know basically not a handout but a hand up to get us uh, through this period of time where we would reimburse the government once the project is up and running. So uh, that is kind of the way we're looking at it is the, the next phase of equity. Um, so uh, we have had, um, I would say, um, in the last six to eight weeks, we have been very uh, actively working with the province of Nova Scotia, Alberta, and uh, the federal government. Um, our project is very much affects uh, almost all of the provinces uh, from uh, west to east and uh, in one form or another and uh, um, you know we don't talk a lot about the second train and the principal reason for that is we're still working quite hard on the uh, on the supply side of that but it's it's likely we are really kind of focusing that supply on Atlantic Canada uh, potentially coming out of Newfoundland and, or uh, potentially even revitalizing Sable that um, uh, and such that, you know, I think except for Prince Edward Island, uh, we would have uh, effectively touched every province from coast to mm -hmm. coast. So, it, uh, so it's very much a transnational project. We've been selling it that way to the federal government. Um, there's no doubt within the Trudeau cabinet. Um, there are uh, ministers uh, who are 
anti-energy, though I'm pretty sure they use it every day. That um, uh, that uh, even uh, even Mr. Butts uses it. I'm pretty sure they do. It's uh, and they probably don't even turn their cars off uh, in the winter time to make sure they're nice and cozy when they jump into them. So um, you know, it's that. But uh, you have to say that thing would bite your tongue, or else you get nowhere. So it's um, but I think um, uh, I mean, Mr. Minister Reagan, he's the Natural Resource Minister of Canada. Uh, he's a very proud Newfoundlander and, uh, and uh, a very high proponent of, Nat of Atlantic Canada. And um, he's very much been supportive of the project and helping to get uh, this through cabinet. So it, uh, you know, we're hoping by the early fall we will have um, a final decision and um, such that we will be able to commence the first phase of construction uh, before um, um, the end of the year, potentially even beginning of uh, before 2021, and with the intent that um, uh, you know, we, we certainly are, we have our work cut out for us. It's difficult to convince people not to build a bridge to nowhere, and uh, that is um, uh, you know the marketplace is going to have to give us a help of a hand with hopefully recovering energy prices. And you know if we were to get another very you know what happened to natural gas this past year. It was very much a, a perfect storm of uh, a non-winter at the beginning of uh, of the year, quickly followed by uh, this COVID uh, pandemic that um, has completely knocked the sales out of uh, of gas consumption. And and uh, you know if we were to have another winter kind of like that, let's pass one again next year on the back of uh, of this. It's going to be hard for gas prices to recover. It's still mostly heating and electrical fuel. And uh, that if you don't um, if you don't get winter, you don't get pricing either. So, uh, mm -hmm. so uh, that's uh, and you know, kind of saw what happened last year. You know, prices through the summer of last year weakened, but they didn't weaken substantially because Europe had significant storage capacity. And that's really the big difference between last year and this year is that your storage was not drawn down enough during the winter because of those two factors: the weather and the pandemic. And so you just don't have enough room to put the, the summer gas in. And there's only two places in the world that have vapor storage. And that's Europe and North America. And that uh, it still amazes me when you hear these last stories of these past few weeks of ships coming back to U.S. and unloading and revaporizing the gas to turn it around and vaporize it one more time, liquefy it one more time. It's a very strange world we live in. But, it really um, is. Valley destruction, isn't it? <laughs> Um, we've we've got a few minutes left. There's a couple of points I wanted to to touch on. Um, KBR, your EPC contractor, has been working to wrap a contract for a couple of years now, and they recently announced that they're getting out of the LNG space. How has that affected uh, your your prefid work? And have you sorted out how that relationship will work going forward? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's a relatively new problem, an unfortunate one for sure. Uh, um, and we were uh, quite uh, taken aback by it, to be quite frank about it. So we uh, we do not have a resolution yet. Uh, it is uh, uh, very much uh, um, a work in progress right now. Uh, but, um, um, sorry about that. <laughs> that um, um, we uh, have uh, uh, really need to um, um, figure out what KBR is willing to do, and uh, if uh, 
um, it's still more than likely that we have to have a fixed price of some sort in order to be financeable. Um, the good news is uh, since they made their announcement, we've probably had several parties have contacted us uh, on their own to replace them. So uh, lots, lots uh, standing so, at the altar, are they? <laughs> yes. Well, that's already happened twice. So uh, twice uh, we've uh, been jilted. So uh, we're trying to make sure that doesn't happen a third time. <laughs> Okay, and the and the second issue that I wanted to address is uh, a couple of months ago, the Alberta Energy Regulator had some some questions about how uh, licenses, operating licenses for your two for two of the three gas plants in Alberta that you acquired from Shell were going to be split, and it had to do with uh, who was responsible for what contamination. Um, I'm I'm assuming that you're still working on. A resolution to that is it a, a simple matter of okay shell this is is this is your mess you have to clean it up or is there a still a shared responsibility going forward i don't know are you talking about the AR mess or are you talking about the actual <laughs> mess <laughs> well, but, take take your pick uh, <laughs> it's uh they're kind of both related anyways and yeah. uh, um so starting with the deal we did so shell is absolutely on the uh uh hook for the contamination so uh um the original application uh that shell made um that was obviously rejected a few weeks ago that um uh, really was a, an attempt to do something that um although the AR had been asked before they even applied that they would look at this, uh, the response was that there was no legal way to do this. So uh, uh, we are working with Shell right now. It is really Shell's responsibility to come up with a solution that works. Um, the absolute um, uh, from a parity perspective is that we will not cover the cost of contamination. And so uh, um, however we go about doing um, uh, um, contractually that the AR has told us you know they would rather all the the, uh, the um, um, licenses be transferred directly to Paraday that there be no splitting and if that's the case then Paraday and Shell will have to come up with a commercial uh, responsibility that will uh, allow us to ensure that the uh, government is uh, is kept uh, a whole so uh, um, whether that ends up being a deposit of some size or um uh, or something like that that's probably what it's going to be but um right now it is in shell's court to resolve and um and our contract is very clear that uh it remains shell's responsibility so uh and i think you saw um um mr carruthers the shell's canada president they made it very clear that shell uh sees this the contamination as their responsibility and they're not looking for a way to um uh, shirk their responsibilities to the to the uh, taxpayers of Alberta or the citizens of the of the province. So uh, um, I don't think it's uh, it's going to be a problem for us. Uh, certainly, from an economic perspective, it isn't. And and you know we continue to ensure that the assets are are um, um, uh, well taken care of, and that uh, we don't have any types of accidents which will only prove to the naysayers. That we were not there to take care of them so uh, mm -hmm. these assets form the basis of our project uh, we need them to be functioning for the next 20 years or longer and um, our intention is to ensure that happens okay all right well 
I think that's pretty much our time, Alfred. I'd like to thank you very much for taking time out from your schedule. Yep, thank uh, you. From the number of, number of times your phone has rung in the background, I suspect you're uh, <laughs> in demand elsewhere. Uh, this has been, in a nutshell, Natural Gas World's fortnightly podcast on uh, all things of interest in the gas industry. And uh, thanks again, Alfred. We'll uh, see all of our viewers next time. Thanks very much for inviting me. Nice to meet you. See you again. Bye.